0: That's the amazing thing about the Constitution, is that the framers had such foresight. I mean, they were skeptical about human nature, and so they wanted to have this kind of a broad preventative rule that said, we don't even want to have the appearance of this kind of corruption. We don't even want to have a situation where we have to ask whether the president or another high official has divided loyalties. And, you know, until now, we just haven't had someone like Donald Trump. I mean, Jimmy Carter had to sell his peanut farm, right, in Georgia. That's how seriously we've taken presidential confl- conflicts of interest until now.
1: Hello, welcome to The Resisters, a podcast where we talk to all the people trying to save us from Donald Trump. I'm your host, Chris Faith. A lot of us have learned a new word this year, and I'm not talking kofifi. No, that word is Emoluments. Our guest today can tell us exactly what that means and if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Deepak Gupta is an attorney who frequently finds himself fighting it out for the underdog in front of the Supreme Court. He's the founding principal of Gupta Wessler PLLC. Deepak and I were previously colleagues at the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and before that he worked at Public Citizen. He filed the very first lawsuit against sitting President Trump on behalf of a government watchdog group called Crew over Trump's violations of the Emoluments Clause. He and I recorded this conversation just before the announcement of two other emoluments cases, one filed by the AGs of DC and Maryland and the other by congressional Democrats. But Deepak's case is the furthest along, and today he breaks all this stuff down for us and tells us where the case stands. Deepak, really great to see you again.
0: Welcome to The Resisters. It's great to see you. Thanks for uh, stopping by.
1: Donald Trump was inaugurated on Friday, January 20th, and you filed a lawsuit against him on Monday, January 23rd. That must have been a pretty busy weekend.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's hard to believe it was all one, one weekend. There was the inauguration on Friday. I was at the Women's March on Saturday. On Sunday, we were in the office putting the final touches on the complaint, and we sued Donald Trump first thing Monday morning, his first full day in office.
1: So can you tell us about the suit?
0: Sure. So the the suit is based on uh, two clauses in the Constitution, actually. There's a foreign emoluments clause and a domestic emoluments clause. And the foreign emoluments clause, and these are not clauses, by the way, that even constitutional scholars are very familiar with. They are kind of sleeper clauses waiting, in a way, for Donald Trump to come into, into office. The foreign emoluments clause was designed to prevent corruption by foreign governments. And the framers were obsessed with corruption. They were afraid that their fledgling republic would uh, be influenced by foreign monarchs and others who wanted to pay officials of the American republic. And so they put in a, a really broad prophylactic rule that prevents people who hold offices of trust in the U.S. government from receiving either presents or emoluments. Now, we know what a present is. A present is a gift I give you, Chris, and you don't expect anything in return. An emolument is a payment for something. Um, So it could include profit, it could include a salary, but it could also include payment for, say, a hotel room (laughs) or uh, for an event at a Trump hotel. And that's where the concern lies, that President Trump has entanglements with foreign governments all around the world and is receiving payments. And that is against the text and spirit of the the Foreign Emoluments Clause. And the the Domestic Emoluments Clause, which is the lesser known of these little-known clauses, um, prohibits the president himself, it only applies to the president, from receiving emoluments from the states or from the federal government that exceed the salary he gets for being president. And so it's our view that Donald Trump has been in violation of both of these clauses from the very minute that he took office. The problem is, and the framers were really sophisticated about how corruption works. They understood that even good people can be corrupted if they're getting payments from uh, foreign governments and their loyalty is divided. And so the problem is that the minute Trump took office, his businesses of which he hasn't divested any uh, financial interest, are receiving these payments uh, from governments. And that puts him in a conflicted situation. And it doesn't help that he's secretive and won't release his tax returns, and so we don't know the extent of these dealings. But it's not just disclosure. It's also that the American people shouldn't have to wonder whether the president has divided loyalties when he sends people... Uh, into battle when he makes decisions about tax policy or anything else that he decides, we should know that we put someone in that office that has undivided loyalty to the American people. And that's what the Constitution demands. We really haven't seen
1: anything like this before, right? I mean, we know that we're living in a unique time with this
0: administration, but is there any precedent for this happening? There really isn't. I mean, but it's all, that's the amazing thing about the Constitution is that The framers had such foresight. I mean, they were skeptical about human nature. And so they checked and checked and balanced and checked. And they did understand. And they they had experience with this, with colonial governments, that, you know, there were people who used the colonial governments as their personal fiefdom. They had lots of experience that they could draw on from history of people trying to use their offices for profit. They were obsessed with this, and they looked at Roman history and, and English history and saw lots of examples of that. And so they wanted to have this kind of uh, broad preventative rule that said, we don't even want to have the appearance of this kind of corruption. We don't even want to have a situation where we have to ask whether the president or another high official has divided loyalties. And, you know, until now, we just haven't had someone like Donald Trump. I mean, Jimmy Carter had to sell his peanut farm, right, in Georgia. That's how seriously we've taken presidential confl- conflicts of interest until now. Um, and so what you have with Donald Trump is someone who has these vast holdings, who's secretive about it, which makes it worse, and refuses to divest himself. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and the Emoluments Clause violations are... are one aspect of this, and and we're focusing on it because it's in the Constitution, um, but we've seen this as a theme across this administration, that they just don't seem to think that the ordinary financial conflict of interest rules apply to them. So we see that with Jared Kushner, you see that with Ivanka, you see that with a bunch of the cabinet members. I mean, this is a consistent problem. Um, I just learned yesterday that the uh, White House is trying to stop the Office of Government Ethics from even getting information about which conflict of interest rules have been waived for Trump administration officials. I mean, that's crazy. That's another unprecedented thing in a list of unprecedented things.
1: I I do remember when uh, Trump said just before entering office, I have a no-conflict situation because I'm president. It's a nice thing to have.
0: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it's, it's not true. The Constitution right. applies to the president. But it's, it is this, like, Nixonian kind of attitude that he has, I think, that, you know, I'm the president, so these rules don't apply to me. And and we're starting to see that. I mean, we see that with the obstruction of, of dr- justice issue, with the, with the Comey firing. There is a consistent theme that, um, you know, the law and the rules that apply... To everyone else and have applied to all previous presidents somehow don't apply to him. And you, you have to wonder, like, is it that he just doesn't understand because he doesn't have a sixth grade understanding of how American civics works? Or is it that he, you know, is sliding us into autocracy and it's a grand plan? In some ways, I've given up trying to figure out which one it is. I don't think it matters. The point is, these are, these are real problems. These are real threats to the Republic, and, and we have to take them seriously. Can you discuss the debate over standing in the case? Yeah. I mean, so standing is this word that lawyers use um, to, to mean, basically, do you have the kind of requisite kind of concrete stake in a controversy to get your foot in the courthouse door? And the Constitution says that the federal courts only hear cases or controversies. Well, I mean, you wouldn't think that those two words would mean that much, but the courts have put a lot of meaning into them. And what they've said is basically like, we don't want our courts to be abstract debating societies. So, you know, if you and I disagree about uh, some interesting question, we can't ask a federal judge to decide it just because we think it's interesting. Um, We have to be harmed in some way. And so when we first filed our lawsuit, we filed it just on behalf of this group, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. And the argument that we made was, crew uh, that's the group is a is a good government group is an ethics group and because of Donald Trump's unprecedented conflicts of interest we've had to divert all of our resources to dealing with that and we can't do all of our other stuff and that's a theory of standing that the courts have recognized going back to housing discrimination cases where uh, a group had to work on housing discrimination that was illegal and they diverted their resources and that was a harm to the organization so that was our theory from day 1 but we knew that people were going to criticize that theory and we knew that we wanted to have ironclad standing if we were going to sue Donald Trump and so we've amended our lawsuit and we've brought in additional plaintiffs so we have a organization of uh, hundreds of restaurants and thousands of restaurant workers and this is a great client because it's also a group that's about raising standards in the in the restaurant industry and organizing restaurant workers um, we have, uh, a woman, sorry, that yeah, group is, it's called the restaurant opportunity center and yes. they are, there's just a great grassroots group that works with restaurants that want to do the right thing, uh, by their workers and set a good example. Uh, and so, you know, we know that that's not the way Donald Trump runs his businesses. So it's also a way of, I think, spotlighting the issues they care about. Um, and then we have a woman, uh, who lives here in DC, Jill Fanouf, who, Her job is booking events for uh, embassies at local hotels. And so she gets a percentage of the revenue from those events that come from embassies. So she is directly in competition with Donald Trump's um, uh, attempts to get foreign business. I mean, Donald Trump actually hired away from another hotel a person whose sole job is the director of diplomatic sales for the Trump International Hotel. I mean, that shows you how much they're going after foreign government business, and, and, and trying to get people who want to curry favor with the president. And then we've added um, a third uh, plaintiff, third new plaintiff, who is an owner of uh, hotels uh, and restaurants that directly compete with Donald Trump. So now I think it's pretty hard, even for the conservative critics who originally criticized our standing to to criticize us on that basis.
1: Part of your discovery in the case, and I don't know, maybe you can tell us whether you're able to do discovery prior to having standing or if the court has to determine that first, but part of your discovery would be an attempt to see Trump's tax returns. Um, Can you talk about that? And is it possible that a court would grant that kind of access?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it is true, as you said, the the, the judge in the case, this is in, in federal court in New York, the judge is going to have to decide whether we have standing. I think we're pretty confident that the judge will say that we do. After that happens, then I think discovery will, will start. And high on our list of things we're going to have to get from the president is his tax returns. And this happens all the time in litigation, that tax returns are turned over in discovery. It's not unusual, and there's no special rule that because you're the president, you get to hide your tax returns. In fact, the modern rule has been exactly the opposite. Everyone that's been a modern president has released their tax returns because the public deserves to know where they're getting income from. And you know, we do know that, that uh, Don Jr., several years back said that much of the Trump Organization's income is from Russia. So I think people have a right to know, is there any income coming into the Trump Organization that is actually from, you know, the Russian government or, or sources that are tied closely to the Russian government? We, we need to know that. And we need to know that to prove our case. So um, I'm quite confident that if we are found to have standing and we can go forward, that we're going to be able to get that kind of stuff in discovery. And, you know, that would be a victory in itself for for good government and transparency and for making sure the American people know what is going on.
1: If you were able to access the tax returns, would they remain for um, lawyers' eyes only, or would they fulfill the public's appetite for that transparency?
0: That's a great question. You know, I don't know. I I, I don't think it's... uh, It's a a foregone conclusion, and I think we can expect that Trump's lawyers at the Justice Department will fight hard on that, and and Trump will ask them to. Um, But I think that, you know, then people are going to have to ask, why is it that he's fighting so hard to hide these tax returns? What's in there? And I do have some confidence that as the Russia investigation moves forward, as questions continue to be asked, eventually the tax returns are going to come out. I mean, Congress has the power to demand them and release them. Um, You know, there are uh, New York State may be able to release the New York State returns. I mean, there are various ways that this information could come out.
1: Well, he has said that the only ones that care about his tax returns are the reporters. Even if only lawyers uh, working on this case had access to the tax returns, at least someone besides his accounting gets to see them, and that that seems significant. Um, Could you explain what... What we might be able to learn about his arrangements, what he owns, where the conflicts are, if we were able to see those returns?
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing we really need to know, and this is of constitutional significance, is does he, is he receiving revenue that comes from uh, organizations, entities, people that are affiliated with or controlled by? foreign governments. And was that happening before he got to the White House? Did that have anything to do with interference in the election? And is he receiving those payments now? Because if he's receiving those payments now, if he's received any payments like that after January 21st, 2017, that's a violation of the U.S. Constitution. And that can't continue. And, you know, what we're asking the court to do is to stop any payments like that from going on. And, you know, then Trump's going to have to make a choice. He's going to have to decide. Um, does he want to continue being the president? He could decide, you know, actually this job is, as he's said recently, this job is harder than he thought, and he wants to leave office. Or he could d- decide to divest himself of of those holdings, which as previous presidents have done. But these are the kinds of things we would find out if we got um, the tax returns. People also, I think deserve to know, you know, how much the president is paying in taxes, because I think there are really good reasons for concluding that he hasn't been paying taxes at all and has been engaged in, you know, the kinds of practices that we see from, uh, from high net worth individuals that are are really, I think, troubling and probably troubling to a lot of the people who voted for Donald Trump, thinking that they were getting something, you know, very, very different from what they got.
1: Crew and... Others, I think it was in April, sued for White House visitor logs. Now, is that a completely separate case, or does it relate at all to what you're trying to find out with this this lawsuit and what you're trying to accomplish here?
0: Well, it's a, it's a completely separate case, and I'm not representing okay. crew in that case. But I think the case is important because uh, it shows the various ways in which this administration just is not being transparent with the American people in ways that previous administrations have been, and so, you know, CREW is working on a broad range of these issues, um, and it's a it's a great organization. The um, the chair and vice chair of the organization are the uh, top ethics lawyers for the Obama and Bush White Houses, and so I think what that shows is, um, you know, this is not just a partisan effort. This is an effort by people who care about sort of basic norms of ethics that have always applied um, to the government. And we also have uh, constitutional scholars um, on the case with us. Larry Tribe, who's someone I've idolized since law school, is probably the greatest American uh, constitutional law scholar. Um, And Zephyr Teachout, who... um, He's actually written a book about corruption in America and the history of corruption and is one of the few people who wrote about the emoluments clause before Donald Trump came on the scene. Um, So we have a really um, awesome uh, group of of lawyers that we're working with on this case. I'm really proud to be part of this team.
1: Well, my guess is that you have gotten some suggestion that maybe your lawsuit is political because it was filed on, on day one of the, or, you know, day...
0: I think if you asked Richard Painter, who was the co-counsel on the case, who was the top ethics lawyer for the Bush White House, he would tell you, look, he's actually a Republican, and he cares about this stuff. And if there had been a Democrat elected to the White House who was engaging in the same kinds of constitutional violations, I think he'd be saying exactly the same thing. So I think that shows you this is not about Donald Trump and Donald Trump being a Republican. And, you know... The, the problems with Donald Trump go well beyond him uh, you know, being from one political party. He is a unique threat to our democracy, um, the way our government is supposed to work. And, and what's been a little bit dismaying to me, or a lot dismaying to me, is that we haven't seen more um, principled Republicans coming forward and admitting that. I think we're starting to see it. And, uh, you know, um, maybe by the time your podcast comes out, uh, things will have developed further in that direction. It I hope develop
1: so. <laughs> quickly in in these news cycles these days.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, how is
1: the suit proceeding? And I'm particularly in- interested in the um, the issue of standing. Does that get worked out first? Do you expect that to happen soon, or will it yeah. take a while? I'm also wondering if the sense of urgency that we, the public, feel does that sense of urgency kind of transfer over to the judiciary, do they, you know, as news is breaking day by day, do they say we have to move faster on this or is it a completely separate process kind of at their own pace?
0: Well, I, you know, I wouldn't want to speak for any particular judge, but I do think, you know, judges are people too. They do read the newspaper. They're aware of what's going on. Um, I think the court has shown that it takes the suit seriously and is moving it along quickly uh the the government's uh brief is due on June 9th June 9th so we're going to see exactly what arguments they make and then we get to respond so the beautiful thing about a lawsuit is that even even Donald Trump has to respond and has to give reasons <laughs> and has to put them in writing which is not something you know you you, you typically would get from him if you didn't have the process of law and and I think we've already seen with the Muslim ban litigation that unfolded the very first week of the administration that the courts are going to respond when there are these kinds of unique threats to the rule of law and our constitutional order, the courts are going to step up, and and they have. And I think you know we saw that we saw that pretty much right from the beginning. You know, it's hard to forget those images of of people spontaneously heading out to the airports, of lawyers standing there uh, waiting to welcome people, waiting to welcome refugees and help them. And then running into court and getting injunctions all around the country. So, um, you know, I am optimistic that the courts are going to be an important bulwark against the Trump administration, and I hope that extends to his, you know, really unique financial conflicts of interest.
1: You mentioned the the airport uh, protest uh, around the time of the Muslim ban, and I'm curious outside the courts. What impact do you think other tactics are having toward transparency and ethics? I'm thinking, for example, of the tax march on April 15th or people's pressure on their members of Congress to press the investigation into Trump's Russia ties. Or for that matter, the artist who uh, has been projecting the words pay Trump bribes here over the entrance of the Trump International Hotel in D.C.? I,
0: I think it all matters. And I think, I mean, what I would say to anyone who's engaging in resistance activities is keep doing what you're doing because it's working. It's, it, it is really uh, having an impact here in Washington. I mean, I think all of the members of Congress, regardless of their party affiliation, realize that there is Uh, an amazing outpouring of civic engagement. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. I wasn't alive in 1968, but I think that's probably the last year in American history where we've seen this kind of level of civic engagement. I think it matters. It certainly matters in Congress. Um, You you know, even if you're a, a, a congressman who, you know, doesn't, um, care about health care, you have to care about the level of outrage that people have about the Republican health care plan. Um, I think it does matter in the courts because it provides a context for um, for the litigation. I mean, obviously, courts are going to do things based on what they think is the right outcome under the law. But um, social movements always affect what happens in the courts. And I think this moment is, is no different from that. So, uh, you know, whether you're Writing letters or making phone calls or protesting every weekend, it all matters.
1: One of the areas that people, I think, are quite concerned about is the attacks on an independent judiciary and on judges in particular. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, I think judges are very, very concerned about that. And I think um, uh, that has an impact. And we saw that even before uh, Trump... Uh, even before election day, you know, with Trump's attacks on Judge Curiel in in, um, California. And I was just yesterday, I was at um, a meeting of the American Law Institute, which is a meeting of judges and lawyers. And the president of the American Bar Association was talking about these attacks on an independent judiciary. And you could see people in the room were very, very concerned. I mean, this is um, something where I think anyone who believes in the rule of law should be very concerned, because these are this is the tactic of an autocrat, of a dictator. I mean, um, you know, the tradition in America is that you allow the courts to make the decision, and then you respect that decision, and you live with it, and you show respect for it. Even in Bush versus Gore, when, you know, a lot of people, myself included, believed that the Supreme Court decided uh, in a very illegitimate way who was going to win that election— you saw what Al Gore did. He said, we respect, we, I mean, we disagree, but we respect the, the decision of the, of the courts. And contrast that to, the, to what you know, Donald Trump consistently says about these courts, using words like so-called judge, questioning the ethnicity of the, the judge who decides the case. Um, it really has a, a corrosive influence, I think, on our institutions. And, you know, four years isn't forever, It'll be over eventually and we'll pick up the rubble of American civilization and rebuild. But I am really concerned about the effect that this kind of rhetoric has on just, you know, our institutions and the rule of law and and what this means going forward. So I don't think anyone should take this stuff lightly. It's not just words. Even if he left office
1: tomorrow, the damage, in some sense, has been done. Giving voice to so much racism, misogyny,
0: xenophobia, and yeah, kind of the the uglier parts of uh, of society. Yeah, I mean, it's a consistent pattern, right? It's it, it's attacking the courts, it's attacking the media, attacking the very notion that there's an object that there's objective truth, <laughs> you know. Uh, attacking women, attacking disabled people, uh, attacking um, uh, you know Muslims um, for being Muslim—all of that is, I think, part of one fabric, and and it's the kind of thing that we see when you know autocracy is rise. And I think you know one lesson of this moment is like we're not immune from it. We always thought I think that America was you know different and that was wasn't going to happen here. Well, it can happen here. It can happen anywhere.
1: You, um, of course, have had a a long commitment to public interest law, and there are a lot of lawyers here in Washington, D.C., and um, not all of them are working for the public interest. But are you seeing any evidence that these times could also create a new generation? Oh,
0: yeah, totally. I mean, that that weekend when the courts started striking down the Muslim ban— One of the reactions I had was, oh, wow, they're just a whole bunch of people that decided to become public interest lawyers. And that's pretty exciting. Uh, And then I actually happened to be, um, so it was all a really compressed time period, but it was like, you know, that weekend the, the injunctions came down. And then I happened to be at Yale Law School meeting with some students the following Tuesday, and I met with the students in that clinic. Uh, It was was the clinic that wrote the briefs that led to the injunction in Brooklyn, the nationwide injunction. And, you know, I just thought, well, you know, these students are my heroes, but they are never going to forget this. I mean, this is such a huge victory, and I can't even imagine what that must be like to experience something like that as a a law student. No, I mean, I I think it's a really defining moment. I think a lot of people are going to reorient their career trajectories and, you know— after we filed our lawsuit, I just heard from uh, all sorts of people—people uh, people I'd known from, you know, uh, going back to elementary school—who <laughs> um, who wanted to do something, and, and especially from lawyers who wanted to, to to feel useful and to do something to fight back. Um, so, I mean, that's the optimistic take on this, right? Is as dark as this time might seem. Um, people are energized. People are civically engaged, and. If we can harness that, you know, that's going to be something that could be a force for good for generations to come. So that's my hopeful take on a very unhopeful time.
1: So you're uh, staying busy because you have the, the emoluments case. And I just wonder what else you might be working on um, with respect to the the Trump administration and the, and the times in which we're living.
0: Yeah, I mean, the challenge for us is not to be completely consumed by... Um, by fighting back against the administration, but but we sort of feel we have to. So there are a lot of things. I mean, you know, the, the things you and I worked on when we were at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a lot of those regulations and policies are being, they're under threat, and so we're working on uh, defending those. And uh, by the time this podcast comes out, we will have announced that we're joining the Trump University case. Um, this is a, you know, it's a consumer protection case, a fraud case. I think a lot of people know that you know, Trump ran uh, a, a con. I mean, it was a scam, Trump University, that, that um, the worst kind of scam, because it tr- took advantage of people's desire to turn their life around, to better themselves by working hard and increasing their, you know, earning potential. Um, and so he told people that they would get mentorships in the secrets of real estate investing. And really, it wasn't a university. Uh, the the mentors had never even met Trump. They knew nothing about real estate in many cases, and the information that the students got was stuff you could have grabbed off the Internet. And our client, uh, Sherry Simpson, paid $19,000 to be a Trump University student to get these courses. Uh, The Trump University mentor didn't even return her phone calls after the first meeting. You know, it was just a complete scam. And so a lot of people think the case is over, because right after the election, Trump settled the case. Uh, but the problem is they were so eager to, to sweep this under the rug that they denied any of the consumers, the class members, the right to opt out of the settlement. And um, that's against the law. The, the, the notice that had gone out to the class members previously said, you're going to have the right to opt out. And so we're appealing to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, and we're arguing that Sherry has the right to opt out. She has the right to take the president to trial for fraud, and she has the right to get the full amount of the money she got back plus three times that amount under the federal RICO statute, um, as well as seeking an admission of of uh, responsibility from the president. I mean, I think the public deserves to know in a public trial that the president engaged in these illegal, you know, fraudulent practices. And I I always thought during the election that the whole Trump University thing was kind of a metaphor for everything that was wrong with Trump. I mean, the the worst thing about him is that he is conning the very people that support him. Um, And so I hope that story comes out. I hope that, uh, you know, people will pay attention to the Trump University case and realize it's not over uh, and that, you know, our client has the right to take Trump to trial. I I hope people will support Sherry's uh, endeavor, because she's just one brave person who's sticking her neck out. She's she's going to get, you know, and she already has uh, gotten a lot of, um, you know, hate mail. Um, but I hope uh, some of you show her some support as well.
1: Well, I, I'm really glad to hear that you're taking on that case, because I think you're right that it's not over. And there are so many things that he and his administration are doing since Inauguration Day that we're focused on, uh, resisting, but the there was a lot that happened before the election and before inauguration day, and it 's always troubled me that those things just seem to have kind of fallen away because he was elected. Even for progressives, I think you know we sometimes think, well, that's over. He's the president now, and and I'm glad to hear that you're taking this on. Are Any particular ways that we can support your client, or just kind of more generally the the work?
0: Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, I think if folks want to, they can they can support Sherry directly. I think you know there's going to be a page on uh, generosity. Uh, she's going to be putting out her story on Vox.com, so folks can read about her story. So I, I hope people will do that. I hope people will engage. Um, directly, And I also think it's just important to raise awareness about the case and about these issues, because we shouldn't just forget, as you say, just because the campaign is over, we shouldn't forget these issues. They define who Donald Trump is. You know, he was a slumlord. He was a con artist. He was... Um, a someone who serially abused women I mean that is who he is and he can't change that fact just because he's the president of the United States
1: on the emoluments case again crew I think their website is citizensforethics.org uh, if, right. if if listeners are interested in supporting their efforts because you're right they have done a, a lot of watchdog work around ethics in this administration. Well, Deepak, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I always learn so much. Thanks so much for advocating for what's right in the in the courts uh, on, on these and so many other issues. Uh, we look forward to seeing the outcome of both of the cases. And best wishes. Th- thanks a lot for having me. It's great talking to you. That does it for this episode of The Resisters. Thanks for listening, and thanks so much to Deepak and crew. You can connect with them at guptawessler.com and citizensforethics.org. You can also listen to more episodes of The Resisters on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you know someone who should be a guest on a future episode, connect with us at theresisters.co.